0: Hey there, I'm Dana, a registered dietitian and registered dietitian exam tutor, and this is my podcast where we go over all of the questions that have been posted to my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Study Group with Dana, over the past week, and we not only chat about the answers, but why are they the answers, as well as answer any questions that students have posted on the page throughout the week. This is a weekly podcast, so be sure to tune in each week for new questions. And of course, I would love to see any of you guys at the live version of this on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. First question we have today is from a student who's saying, I am keep getting mixed up with this. What is the difference between our fixed costs and our semi-variable costs? And here she's asking specifically for utilities, because Different resources say different. So perfect example of a question to bring onto the page. So I would first want to kind of address this question with thinking about the definition. So when we're thinking about a fixed cost in let's say our utilities, and let's put an example on ourselves, this is something that doesn't change no matter how much I'm using something, no matter my sales, it's always the same every month. So for me... A utility that is a fixed cost for my business is going to be my internet. If I'm using it or not using it, my internet is always the same price. Now, I can also have utilities that are semi-variable. And when you're thinking about semi-variable, you want to think that there's an aspect of it that is fixed. So even if I don't use it at all, I owe this. And then there's an aspect that the more I use it or the more kind of sales I have, the more I pay. So it's kind of like a stair step if you want to think about it on the graph. So for this, an example that you guys might have at home is like with your electricity, right? If the electrical company charges you, let's just for example, say $50 a month just to be on their service. So you have, that's going to be a fixed cost for electricity. But then if It's $1 for every, I don't know what the unit is for electricity, like kilowatt? Who knows? Let's say kilowatt. And they're saying, okay, it's $1 per kilowatt. So the more I'm using my electricity, the more I'm spending, but no matter what, I have that base cost. So it's a mix and it really depends, you know, does your whatever utility have a base fee and then the amount you use it? increases it or is it the same no matter what? The other example that I like to give for a fixed variable is a business one. So those of you guys who have taken my record courses, you know that I use this website Teachable to host them. It's you know a great resource for kind of creators who have video lectures like me. So I use Teachable. When I first started tutoring in 2020, I of course was like, oh I want to do the lowest fee possible. So the, that first year, I had a bill from Teachable that I would consider semi-variable because it was like $400 for the year to make my account have access to it. But then every course sale, they took off like 3% of my course sales. So if I sold no courses, I still had to pay $400. But then off of every sale, I paid a little, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. So that fee my first year was semi-variable because it had an aspect of both. Now, after I did that first year math and I was like, whew, 3% off all my course sales is a lot of money. And it was actually more than paying the higher rate, like for a higher program. So now my utility for Teachable is a fixed cost. I pay that bill once a year and then I have no transaction fees which is a lot cheaper than paying 3% off every course. So now that bill is going to be a fixed cost. So with semi-variable, you want to be thinking it has a combination of fixed and variable. So again, when you're getting a question on this, you want to be thinking um, about you know an example. And you can use my examples, use your own examples, but especially with the vocab, especially Domain 3 vocab, around finance and management, I find it's really, really helpful to put your own examples. Because if you can put your own example, that means that you actually know it. Next question we have from another student is, which of the following would fit the criteria for severe malnutrition in acute illness or injury? So before I even jump into the questions, I'm thinking, okay, Severe malnutrition for acute illness and injury. So what I'm thinking here is I'm thinking, okay, severe fat and muscle wasting. For fluid accumulation, I'm thinking severe. I'm also thinking, too, about greater than 2% weight loss in one week. So that's kind of what I'm coming up at over the top of my head. And now, oh, and then also less than 50% intake for greater than five days. Okay, so now I'm going to go into my question options, my answer options, and kind of put them, yes, no, maybe. So A, mild fluid accumulation. Uh, You know, I would really be looking for severe because what you're looking for for malnutrition fluid accumulation isn't like the patient has heart failure or they're having edema from renal disease. What you're having when you're having Fluid accumulation, that's for malnutrition. So you kind of have to figure out what is the cause of the fluid accumulation is the fluid that retention you're getting from malnutrition is going to be from your lack of albumin, right? Because albumin's an oncotic protein, meaning that it's kind of keeping water where it should be. So if I am malnourished and I don't have enough albumin because I'm not eating enough protein, you're going to start to have what's called third spacing, because the water is no longer held where it should be. So now all of a sudden, it's going to be leaking out. That's why you'll hear people say third spacing. Another vocab word for that is anasarca, And that's the type of fluid accumulation that is from malnutrition. So that type of fluid accumulation, you would be worried about with malnutrition. So just mild... Mm, No, not for severe. That's not, that's going to be concerning, especially if we know it's a nutrition cause, but it's not necessarily going to be my severe. Okay, so I'm going to cross that one out. Then I have measurably measurably reduced hand grip strength. So that's on a, I can't think of what the name is. You guys know what I'm talking about, but it's like you grab it, hand grip strength. We'll just call it hand grip strength machine. So the fact that they are having a measurable decrease Right, that's concerning because you're losing lean body mass, you're not as strong. So, that one I'm putting kind of in my yeah, maybe category because I didn't necessarily have that one top of mind because I honestly don't have one for my office. I would love one for my office, and I maybe I'll see if I can get one. I'll keep you guys updated. But this is a great way to kind of measure, and it's also nice for your patients too because they can kind of see, you know, like, oh, I'm getting stronger. Okay. Nothing about that. Then we have C, BMI of 19. This is a normal BMI, and I don't have any other information, so cross that out. And then I have D, which is really tempting, and everyone was split on this one. It is weight loss of 2% in one week. The only reason why this is not correct is because it has to be greater than 2% in one week, and that's per the ASPEN guidelines. And you want to make sure that you're understanding what significant weight loss is in the time period. So as a reminder, for acute malnutrition, it would be greater than 2% of your body weight lost in one week. For a month, you're looking greater than 5%. For three months, you're looking greater than 7.5%. For six months, greater than 10 And then for a year, greater than 20 So this is so close. And honestly, if this was my patient in clinic, I'm going to be like... It's greater than 2%, just bump them up. But technically, this patient doesn't meet criteria for severe malnutrition if they have weight loss that's only 2%. So the best answer here would be that they're having that measurably decreased hand grip strength because that's correlating with your mean body mass. The reason it's not the weight is because with the weight, you're going to be thinking we're not meeting um, we're not meeting the guidelines. Now, the next one isn't a question, but it's a free guide I put up on the Facebook page. So if you're one of my lovely listeners who does not have access to the Facebook page to take advantage of the free study guides on there, just shoot me an email, DanaJFryerNutrition at gmail.com and ask me for the Labor Laws study guide. So I put this up on the Facebook page. And if you're on the Facebook page, just search for Labor Laws um in the little search bar and you'll find it. But I want to make sure you guys remember about what, you know, what different laws that you need. So the first one that you want to know is the National Labor Act. And remember, that is the Wagner Act. This is one of the ones they ask about most often because this one is kind of the first pro-labor one. Then after that one, we had the Labor Management Relations or the Taft-Hartley Act. And this one was reactionary to the Wagner Act. And this one was more pro-management. And those are the two that they tend to kind of ask about the most. Um, Some other ones just to make sure you know what they are and kind of, you know, you can get the study guide and you can kind of see them too. Um, The Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act, Civil Rights Act, Age Discrimination Act, the Family and Medical Leave Act, they do like to ask questions about that, especially saying, you know, how many employees do you need to have to get this? 50. How long can you stay out? 12 12 weeks. Um, uh, Another one they like to ask about is the American Disabilities Act. Key thing here, remember, it needs to be making reasonable accommodations So what we're saying there is like, let's say I'm at the hospital and there's a step on the first, you know, in the clinic. I would, reasonable accommodations if I had an employee that had difficulty with mobility would be things like adding a ramp, adding, you know, a handrail, things that can be done to help them get up the step. Versus if I, you know, went to hire an employee And they were telling me, you know, I'm doing the interview, and I'm like, yep, so my office is on the third floor, you know, and they're like, okay, well, I can't use stairs, so is there any way we could add an elevator? I'd be like, no, we can't, because the building is from 1922, so that wouldn't be a reasonable accommodation. So they asked about that a lot. Other ones, equal employment opportunity, equal pay, and um, fair labor act. So make sure if you're not up to snuff with your labor laws, do a search for that guide on the Facebook page or just shoot me an email and I can get it to you. But a reminder that a chart is a wonderful way to kind of organize everything. I love a chart because it helps you to kind of grab things that are from all over the test and all over your materials. Remember, especially if you're using Inman, there's other... types of labor laws that are not in Inman that are asked about on the practice questions. So with your study guides, even if you're making them off Inman, don't be afraid to add in information you're getting in the Facebook page, you're getting in my class, you're seeing on questions like pocket prep and around different places too, because you want to just build on your material. We also got a question on this page too of, you know, what formulas are we going to need to know For the exam and this is definitely a really really big question because you need to know a lot of different formulas um, a lot of different formulas for the exam and the ones that are on the exam you'll see are covered in my recorded course equations part one and two and also the math boot camp there's a lot there's 34 that are gone through that class a big reminder for you when you're studying the equations, is that you cannot, with the equations, just memorize them all. There's too many. You're not going to memorize 34 of them. But you want to be thinking for each one, why would I use it? What is it used for? Why is it helpful information for me to know? Because I don't want you to get stuck on a question where you can do the math and you're like, "Uh, my inventory turnover ratio is eight. What do I do about it? I don't know. So you want to be thinking about what is this term, study this term, what's kind of the definition, what is it used for? And then also thinking about it too, well, what's the equation? And then add in kind of an example so you can see how it's used. So I go over over all the equations that you'll see on the exam in my math classes, but you also want to remember the equations are beyond just domain three They're also in domain one, also in domain two. So some common equations that I feel like everyone always forgets about are things like nitrogen balance, how to solve for MEQs, calories for a fever, carb exchanges, glucose infusion rate. You still need to know all of those, um, even though they're not kind of the traditional math ones. So definitely check out those classes if you need some help with math and those All my math classes do come with my math study guide. So let me take the work out of it and go check those out. Next question we have from me is, in December 2014, the FDA approved a final rule that calorie and other nutrition information would be required on standard menu items offered for sale in a restaurant or similar retail stores. This is that are part of a chain with more than how many locations doing business under the same name offering kind of the same foods. So this one is a fact-based question, but if you have more than 20 restaurants, so if I had like 15 DJF nutrition cafes, I wouldn't need it. If I have 20, I have to have the calories on the menu, which I personally hate cuz I always feel victimized when I'm like, "Ooh, I want this," and then I'm like, "I'm still going to get it." But like do I need to know it's 1500 calories? No, not really. Next question we have is a pediatric patient is diagnosed with Nietzsche and poor growth rate. And remember, that's the skin condition. You're kind of getting the pox on the skin, those little red pox. So I said, what deficiency does this patient have? So having kind of the combination of those symptoms, we're concerned for an essential fatty acid deficiency. And a lot of people were right where they were saying like omega-6, you know, but remember the essentials are omega-6 and omega-3, linoleic and alpha-linoleic acid as well. Next one we have is about organizational chart and also kind of asking about, you know, like upward, downward you know, horizontal communication. So what you want to be thinking here and kind of when you're picking what type of direction are you getting, you want to be thinking about kind of where are they on the hierarchy of their department kind of compared to you. So if we're talking about dietitian, and that's kind of our unit, we're the dietitian, talking up to like the clinical nutrition manager, the nursing manager, you know, a doctor, those are all going to be kind of our upward communication versus talking to another dietitian or like a nurse, you know, that's going to be our horizontal or like a therapist. And downward would be like me talking to my dietetic interns or me talking to a nursing aide or like a diet aide too. And sometimes you can see diagonal. That would have to mean kind of, but it would have to tell you the direction because that would mean like you're going up, you know, from yourself, but to like a different department or like down from yourself into a different department um, too. So it can definitely get a little tricky. Next question we have is a favorite. I like to ask this one. And this student, I'm glad she did because she said, I have to admit, I have no idea on this one. And that's why it's a great one to add to the page. This one is kind of an example of one that is math without being math, but we can actually make it math to be better. So this one says the formula for determining value analysis is our V equals Q or quality over price. So what we're saying too, kind of like our quality of what we're getting over price equals value. And then they're saying if P increases and there's no change in Q, then V will do what? And this is one of the questions where even though it's not asking us to do math, it's going to be 10 times easier if you put math in it. So let's just put some simple math in this. So let's say our quality is 10, our price is 5, which would make our value 2. So let's just say that's our base. Then I want to go back to the question, because at this point I'm like, what do they want? So it says, if P increases, so that's saying if, let's say my P just goes to 6. So now I have 10 over 6. And it's saying, what's going to happen to the value? So then I go over to my calculator, 10 divided by 6. And I have that now my value will be 1.6. So it decreased. So I look at the options. It says it will remain the same. It will increase. It changes as much as P or it's going to decrease. And the answer is that it's going to decrease. Rationale, we just did that. I changed it. So especially with more kind of the situational questions that are asking you as a formula, but not necessarily do math, don't be afraid to put in the math because it's actually going to help you. And just make up your numbers. You'll see this kind of similar to with solvency ratio because they'll give you your cost of goods sold and they'll give you your average inventory and remember With our inventory turnover ratio, it would be our cost of goods sold on the top and then our average inventory on the bottom. And they might ask you, okay, based on this, you know, should I increase? Should I decrease inventory? And sometimes that's confusing. So you can also just, you know, let's say they said the solvency, not the solvency, the um, inventory turnover, let's just make it simple and say, that we had a cost of goods sold of $5,000, so that's on the top over $1,000. So we know that that's going to, when we divide that, that's going to be an inventory turnover ratio of five, which is too high, right? We want two to four. So let's say they gave us that information, and they said, well, what should I do? Should I increase or decrease my inventory? And you cannot remember, oh, my God, what did Dana say? Do I increase or decrease? I can also say, okay, well, I'm trying to get to four or less. So what's going to get me to four or less? Well, let me try if I increase the inventory. So if I did 5,000 over 2,000, that's going to get me 2.5. So that worked. So now I can see, oh, if I I increase my inventory, I'm going to improve the number too. So we can always be putting kind of example math in there because sometimes that's going to actually help us a lot more than it is going to make it more confusing. Thanks for tuning in for this week's practice question review. Don't forget that we are doing these live on my Facebook page, Registered Dietitian Exam Tutoring with Dana R.D., every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and I would love to have you join live. You can also head to my website, DanaJFNutrition.com, to find out about the latest classes as well as study tips and services. Thanks for tuning in.